The information provided on this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available are for general informational purposes only. Welcome to Rights Here, Rights Now, the podcast about disability, advocacy, and activism. I'm your advocate host, Virginia Ferris. And I'm your advocate host, Ren Fazuski. Every two weeks, we dig into relevant issues, current events, and avenues for self-advocacy. Because someone has to. And it might as well be us. This podcast is produced by the Disability Law Center of Virginia, the Commonwealth's Protection and Advocacy Agency for Disability Rights. Find out more at dlcv.org. Okay, Ren, are you ready for a very dense but important topic? I'm always ready. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about the state budget. Oh, goody. That's right. We're talking about both policy and math. Both of my best things. <laughs> so I am equally qualified to talk about none of this. Well, we, we were lucky enough to have um, DLCV advocate uh, Rhonda Thyssen, um, who's also a professor at uh, VCU. Um, she is so fabulous. She's so fabulous. And she, who actually understands this sort of thing, came in, um, gave us a rundown of how uh, the budget is created and um, just things that we may not have considered. So, um, yeah, it, it's an important one. It Like, I'm warning you, it's going to get complicated. Well, I'm very excited to learn a lot, apparently, this episode. Um, but before we jump into that, let's check out Disability in the News. Democratic presidential candidate Senator Elizabeth Warren has just released a plan aimed at tackling issues that affect those with disabilities. In a 16-page policy, Warren outlined a series of proposals that include areas like Social Security, Education, and Employment. Regarding Social Security reform, Warren plans to expand the program by eliminating waiting periods for Social Security Disability Insurance, SSDI, and Medicare, fixing the SSDI Return to Work Benefit Cliff, and improving the SSI program. Warren's plans also include the protection of civil liberties, including establishing a federal standard on use of force and increasing funds for training, stopping the criminalization of homelessness and poverty, decriminalizing mental health crises, and enforcing the ADA in the legal system and in access to counsel. Several other Democratic hopefuls, including former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, former HUD Secretary Julian Castro, who dropped out of the 2020 race last week, and Senator Kamala Harris, who dropped out in December, released disability policies last year, while Warren has previously integrated disability issues into her other campaign proposals. As one in four Americans have a disability, such policy proposals can make a significant difference in the ongoing Democratic primary. For more, go to time.com. All right. Well, we are so excited to have um, the lovely new acquisition to DLCV, uh, Ms. Rhonda Thyssen here, to tell me what's going on with the state budget, because goodness knows I have no idea. Hey, Rhonda. Hey, Ren. Hey, Virginia. <laughs> Thanks for having me. So for advocates, um, it's really important to understand the state budget because the state budget funds all operations of state government. Mm -hmm. So that's important for us because any services or supports that people with disabilities need, 
that are state funded or even federally funded are going to be managed through the state budget. Okay. So Virginia has what's called, and that's Virginia as the Commonwealth, not Virginia Ferris as our fabulous advocate. Um, <laughs> Virginia has a biennial budget, which means it's a two-year budget that the General Assembly adopts every two years in even-numbered years. And we make amendments in odd-numbered years. So in okay. 2020... We will be in the General Assembly session, which starts on January the... Hang on, i got to check and see what the date is. Sorry. I think January it's 8th. 8th. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in the General Assembly session that starts January 8th, the General Assembly will be considering the governor's introduced budget for the state fiscal year that begins on July 1st, 2020, and that rolls to June 30th, 2021, as well as the state fiscal year that starts July 1st, 2021, and runs through June 30th, 2022. So it's a two-year budget. And so the state government budget includes lots of different sources of revenue. Uh, there's income taxes that we all pay. There's grants that we receive from the federal government, from a variety of other sources, fees, sales, earnings, transfers and balances, a lot of economic stuff that's kind of boring for the average person. <laughs> But the important thing to understand is that the state budget has two different types of funding. There are general funds and non-general funds. And the difference is that general funds are discretionary funds that we use for a variety of purposes. So, mm -hmm. um, and non-general funds are funds that are designated for specific purposes, either by law or by policy. Okay, so... Uh, just, I, I just kind of wanted, I, I wanted to kind of go further into that point. What would be considered typical discretionary funds? Like what are kind of some examples that people would, would know about? So people might be familiar with non-discretionary funds because those are funds that, for example, they're that an example of a non-discretionary funding is federal grant funds that the state has to spend for a specific purpose. So for example, mm -hmm. the, the state receives many millions of dollars from the federal government every year for Medicaid-funded services. Medicaid is a state and, and a federal m match program. And in Virginia, 50% of Medicaid expenses are funded by federal government revenue mm. and 50% by state government revenue. So the state has to use the federal revenue that it receives for the Medicaid program on Medicaid-funded services. So they couldn't take Medicaid funds that come from the federal government and use them for some other. They can't build bridges right. with Medicaid. I, I imagine the federal government would be upset if Indeed, you know, they, they gave them this money <laughs> and then they were like, well, really, we would like to, I don't know, build more roads or like we, a bridge somewhere. Uh, correct. That's we right. threw a big pizza party. <laughs> <laughs> so the way to look at general at general funds versus non-general funds for the average person is to think about how much money you have left over after you pay all your bills. So once you pay your rent and your utilities and your cell phone and all that, any money that you have left over, that's your general fund revenue. It's money that you can spend on whatever <laughs> oh, else okay. you want to spend it on. How do we decide um, how it's spent? Obviously, we, we have certain areas that, like, you have to spend it this way. But even, mm -hmm. I imagine, in those areas, like, we do sort of, we can determine specifically where they go, right? That's right, yeah. And so it's the governor's administration. So the governor, um, just like the president, is the executive of the state government, like the president is the executive of the federal government. So the governor and the administration, which is the governor's staff, essentially, uh, are making those decisions and proposing. So there's, it's kind of like it's a five-phase process, the way that the budget is developed. So let me talk just a little bit about each one of the phases. So the first phase is the agency, state agency's budget preparation. So state agencies every year, starting in the late summer generally, 
uh, review their strategic needs, which means they look at what are the administration's priorities. So for example, for let's talk about mental health and, and uh, developmental um, disability services. Mm. So the, the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services will talk about what are the things that, that they as a state agency would like to accomplish in the coming year or the coming two years, depending on which how many budget years we're working on. And they will say, okay, so for example, we want to increase the um, number of people that are coming out of state hospitals that are moving into permanent supportive housing. That's mm-hmm. gonna take us X number of dollars to do that. So we think that we would like to increase the number of people that receive permanent supportive housing services by 400 over the next two years. So they will put in their budget, they develop the budget that the department needs for all of its services and supports and expenses into a budget and so that additional funding, for example, for permanent supportive housing would go into the budget as, as part of the agency's budget preparation. And so for advocates, it's important to understand this process because if, if you're an advocate and you, want your, you or your organization want to advocate for funding to go into the budget for a specific purpose, then you will need, the, the best thing to do is during agency budget preparation or even before that, make contact with somebody in the state agency and say, you know, Mm -hmm. so my organization supports, for example, expanding permanent supportive housing. And Mm -hmm. we would like to see the state enable 500 additional people next year to obtain permanent supportive housing. So advocacy organizations and self-advocates can have a big role in pushing these priorities. Okay. So understanding how that works and understanding the, the time frames by which, you know, the, during which the, the government is working on their budget, it, it gives people a kind of a kickstart to get into that process. I think that makes sense because obviously, you know, the, the governor and his administration aren't experts in literally everything that the money will be spent on. So it makes sense that these agencies are the ones who are going to explain to their office, like, this is what we're looking for, this is how much we'll need for it, and... I'm sure that the governor's office tweaks it yes. and kind of figures out exactly, but, you know, it's the agencies who make that recommendation. Mm-hmm. And um, and then, yeah, like, again, having having advocates and, and, and uh, other nonprofits who have specific interests speak with those agencies and are like, hey, so we'd really, you know, you said you get all that money to, mm-hmm. like, get people into the community. Remember that? <laughs> Could right. we have that? That'd yes. be great. Exactly. And that's a perfect segue into phase two of the budget development, which is state the state budget development. So each state agency is going through this process in the late summer, early fall. And then in the late fall, so so every state agency submits its requested budget, which is the budget that it proposes mm-hmm. for the governor's review, to the state budget agency, which is called the Department of Planning and Budget, or DPB. And so DPB is responsible for reviewing all of the state agency uh, proposed budgets to determine, you know, so do the does the state agency really need this money? What is it that the state agency is proposing to do with this money? Is that, are those uh, proposed uses in accordance with the governor's strategic vision for that particular agency? So, uh, for example, let's go use the example of permanent supportive housing Mm -hmm. again. So, if the governor, the uh, Department of Planning and Budget um, knows that the governor supports expanding permanent supportive housing, then it's more likely that DBHDS would be able to keep that money that they requested in their budget to expand permanent Mm -hmm. supportive housing. Now, often what happens is uh, items are stricken out of the agency's budgets 
Uh, they're replaced with other items that the governor or his, uh, you know, the secretaries of whatever, you know, um, secretariat we're talking about, whether it's health and human resources or public safety and homeland security, whatever the issue is. They might add other things. They might change the dollar amounts. So the department may ask, like, say, let's say they ask for $5 million in permanent supportive housing. The governor may eventually say, well, I support this effort, but we really can't afford $5 million. So let's put in $2 million, which actually happened uh, in the uh, budget development during 2019, mm-hmm. uh, in the 2019 session. Um, so during the state budget development process, the governor and all of his cabinet secretaries and all the agencies work together to ensure that the governor is happy with his his version of the budget, uh, which reflects his priorities. And then the governor, once he makes the final determination, yes, this is the budget that I want that reflects my administration's priorities, he submits the bill, he introduces the budget. It's usually, um, usually it's on the third December of every year. um, Mm -hmm. And he releases the budget to the public and it also goes to the General Assembly and gets introduced in the form of a bill, just okay. like all other General Assembly bills come at. I kind of had a thought, and again, I know this might be a little tangential, but obviously um, Virginia uh, for a while was pushing back against uh, the federal Medicaid expansion, and we mm-hmm. just recently did mm-hmm. the yes. Medicaid expansion. Yeah. How does how did that kind of affect the budget? Because, again, the budget's not really an area I'm familiar with, and that's why we have you on. Excellent um. question. Very important for our stakeholders as well. Um, so Medicaid expansion is a long and complicated discussion. But to answer your question, um, so the – the original discussions around Medicaid expansion, which started in 2011, maybe, um, the concerns that were expressed by members of the General Assembly at the time were two things. One, that they, they didn't want to expand Medicaid because of the potential expense to the state. Now, the federal government, through the Affordable Care Act, was paying, like, remember I said Medicaid is a 50-50 revenue share mm-hmm. between the feds and the right. state. So through the Affordable Care Act, what the federal government uh, committed to do was to, for people who were enrolled in Medicaid through expansion, the federal share would be 90%. So the feds were picking up the vast majority of the cost for that expansion. Um, The General Assembly, over the the preceding five or so years during all this uh, discussion, were concerned that that money would actually go away because nobody ever really knows what's going to happen at the federal level, right? Mm-hmm. So finally, in um, as you referred to, in the 2018 General Assembly session, there was an agreement between the Republicans and the Democrats in the General Assembly that, that we would allow Medicaid expansion, and Medicaid expansion did begin on mm-hmm. July 1st, 2019. So what we have learned since then, so since expansion began um, on January 1st of, of 2019, almost over 300,000 people have enrolled in Medicaid from the expansion population, which oh, are wow. working adults, well, adults um, 18 and older who are have incomes up to 138% of the federal poverty level. So that's like a family of three, $28,000 a year, roughly. Okay. Um, so... We don't know. I think there's there have been some concerns recently uh, that Medicaid expenses are higher than what was originally anticipated. Um, and mm-hmm. so there's been some conversation at the state level that maybe the, the, the Department of Medical Assistance Services, which is the state Medicaid agency, 
underestimated the cost for Medicare for Medicaid funded services. Um, not not only due to expansion, but also due to the fact that Medicaid is the largest public insurer yeah. in the state, and the the majority of people in the Medicaid program um, are people. Well, maybe not. That's they, that may be not completely true. That a significant percentage of them are older adults and people with disabilities who mm-hmm. have higher medical medical expenses. Right. So there's been some you know kind of pushback um, in the General Assembly on the cost because they're relating the cost of expansion to the to the unanticipated increased cost of Medicaid. So it's a complicated conversation. Um, but one of the things that's really important for advocates to, re- to realize, and, and this is something that, you know, when we think about the budget. So I talked before about mm-hmm. general funds versus non-general funds. So general funds are the, like I said, it's like the mad money that the state has to pay with, play with. So that only comprises about 35, 36% of the state budget. Mm-hmm. So the rest of the state budget, 65, almost 65% of the budget is already claimed by other expenses. Right. So Virginia has a balanced budget amendment in the Constitution, which means we cannot run a deficit in our, in our state spending like the federal government does. Mm-hmm. So if we have a downturn in the economy, for example, like happened during the recession, the state has to cut expenses and cut services because we can't deficit spend. So we can't spend more than we earn every year. Right. And so the big concern about Medicaid expansion, going back to your original question, is that it's looking like it's going to be more expensive than was originally anticipated. And so what's going to happen in the long run with that, it, we'll see what, what, what happens. Can I, I, I have a question. It's going to sound like a joke, but it, it's not. How, how does anybody know what anything's going to actually cost ever when developing a budget? Good point. I mean, it's a really good question. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people will will say, well, you know, we, we have longstanding, you know, like the, the way the state and a and lot of sort of economic uh, policy come, you know, is that we look at previous expenses. So, you know, we could, the way the state develops a budget, part of the, what they look at is prior year expenses. Okay. And then the state also, um, the Department of Planning and Budget and the Department of Taxation and other state agencies do revenue projections. Mm-hmm. So based on economic activity, we can say, okay, we feel reasonably secure that the state's revenue forecast, so what we think we may be taking in in the forms of taxes and fees and, mm-hmm. you know, driver's license, you know, stuff, and it, it will be X amount of dollars. So all of that, to, in addition to projecting how much they might need to, to provide services at DBHCS or at the CSBs, for example, they also need to figure out how much money are we going to have coming in that will fund these costs because mm-hmm. everything has to be what's called revenue and cost neutral. So if you're going to spend a dollar, you have to have a dollar to come in because we have a balanced budget amendment, which means right. we can't borrow. All right, so the, fir- the third phase, so the initial phase was agency preparation. Mm-hmm. Second phase was governor's review and governor, um, you know, uh, governor's action to introduce the budget. So I mentioned that the budget gets introduced into the General Assembly as a bill. Um, and so the bu- it's called the budget bill. And so the, so the governor and the state agencies are not the only entities that have anything to do with the budget. Yeah. The General Assembly also has a lot to do with it. Um, and so that really the development of the budget is a joint effort between the administration and the General Assembly. So the bills go, there's two bills. There's a, the Senate budget bill and the House budget bill. 
And once they're introduced in the General Assembly, the House bill is referred to the House Appropriations Committee, which is the committee in the House of Delegates that is responsible for essentially providing input on the budget. And in the Senate, it's referred to the Senate Finance Committee, which is the same committee in the Senate. So Mm -hmm. those committees, people may have heard uh, about the money committees, quote unquote money committees. (laughs) So those committees are the money committees because they're the committees that make the impact on on the, the budget. So every legislator, in the General Assembly, there are 140 legislators, 100 in the House of Delegates and 40 in the Senate, have the right to, to submit amendments to the budget. And so, and this is sort of where, a, a, another um, avenue where advocates and self-advocates and organizations can get involved. Uh, because you, as an advocate, can go to your member, your, your member of the House of Delegates or your state senator, and ask that he or she introduce a budget amendment. So it's a little bit like if you ask your dad if you can borrow the car and he says no and then you go ask your mom. (laughs) Kind of, sort of, in a way. This is where you get into like uh, pork and things like that. This idea, it's what? also, isn't it called pork? Yeah, yeah. So well, the concept of pork barrel spending. It's the idea, oh, it's okay. the idea that it, it's a real thing. Yeah. I know a it thing about a, politics, thing. okay? <laughs> but it's the idea that it's not just, obviously this is this is the state budget, but this is really where like individual representatives can mm-hmm. do specific things for their district. Correct. To follow through with what their you know what their constituents are asking. For. That's right. They're they're the 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 correct term is earmarks, but they're also called pork pork. And you may have heard the term pork barrel spending. Mm-hmm. So pork barrel spending was really more refers to the federal at the federal level, is when legislators include items in the budget, like Ren says, that specifically benefit a group, an organization, a community, or whatever. So what happens when, once the 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 legislators have a specific deadline for when they have to submit all budget amendments. Usually it's like, so the General Assembly starts the the, the second Wednesday of um, January every year. And generally it's within like a week or 10 days. All, all budget amendments have to be introduced by all the members. And so what happens then is, and so delegates are, are proposing amendments to the House version of the budget. Senators are proposing amendments to the Senate version. And then the House Appropriations Committee considers those amendments to the House bill, Senate finance considers amendments to the Senate bill, and then all of those legislators have to go in front of those committees and justify why they're asking for this additional money. So from an advocate's perspective, if if you're an advocate and you go to your, your, your member and you say, you know, Delegate Bell, I would like for you to uh, introduce this budget amendment for whatever the issue is you the the member will often ask well why do you want this money and we need to know why you want this Mm -hmm. money because they have to justify to to the committee why they're asking for this additional money in the budget because again every time there's an increase in the the expenditure budget there has to be either a cut someplace else or there has to be additional revenue because it all has to even out at the end so once they've met with these with these committees and they've kind of gone through this process where they're defending these these amendments, does that go into sort of the fourth phase? It does. It goes so once the so once the amendment the amended, the, so what happens in the committees is that all the all the members uh, present their amendments, the Senate Finance Committee and the House Appropriations Committee vote, and they determine so they they come up with the initial uh, version of the House budget and the Senate budget. 
And then the next thing that happens, the next phase of the process is that those bills, just like all other bills that make it through committees in the General Assembly, are introduced on the floor of the House and the Senate. And then there's the ability to discuss, to complain, to add amendments, to change amendments. And so finally, once each House has come to an agreement on its own version of the, of the budget. So at this point in the, in the session, we've got three budgets. We've got the governor's original introduced budget, we've got the House version, and we've got the Senate version. Mm-hmm. And so the next phase in that process is that because there are always differences between the House version and the Senate version, after each House um, has done all of its deliberations, then there's a what's called a conference committee gets put together to resolve differences between the budgets. So when there is a split government, like what we had last year, so meaning split government, meaning the General Assembly is controlled by one political party and the administration is controlled by the other. So mm-hmm. Governor Northam is a Democrat. Since he took office, the Republicans were in control of the General Assembly because they had majorities in the House and the Senate. There's going to be big differences in the budgets. And so, right. for example, yeah. in the 2019 session, or I'm sorry, the 2018 session, the huge difference which held up the passage of the final budget was Medicaid expansion. Mm-hmm. And so the budget bill is the only bill. So when uh, bills go to the governor, once they pass out of the General Assembly and they go to the governor for signature, the budget bill is the only bill. Any bill can be um, can can become law without the governor's signature, if the how if the general assembly has the majority votes of it, except mm-hmm. the budget bill. So there has to be an agreement between the governor and the general assembly on the budget. If there's not, right. then there's no state budget. So once the conference committee meets, and then the conference committee includes members of the house and members of the senate, they work together to hash out the differences. So once the, um, the General Assembly approves its version of the budget, it goes to the governor. And so after that, the General Assembly adjourns, and they stay adjourned for um, six weeks, I believe. And during that six-week period, the governor reviews the budget, as well as all the other bills that mm-hmm. have been passed. And so just like other bills, the, the governor can sign the budget bill. He can say, okay, this budget looks great to me. I'm going to sign this, and then it'll become the, the official budget. He can veto the bill or certain parts of it. Now, this is one difference that Virginia has over the federal level, is that we actually, our governor has a line item veto, which means that he can veto a specific line in the budget. Or so he can he can sign it, he can veto it, he can veto certain line items or certain expenses, or make amendments to it. And many times the governor will make amendments to the budget because basically they changed his budget, right? So he wants to get back to where he started, so he may make amendments to it. So if he vetoes the whole bill or vetoes part of it, it will go back to the General Assembly in a reconvened session, which happens like six weeks after they adjourn. Um, Then they have to consider his amendments and it goes through the whole kind of process all over again. And so finally, if they get to a point where the General Assembly and the governor, and this happens every year because if it didn't, we wouldn't have a state budget, finally come to an agreement on the budget, and then he signs the budget bill. So for 2020, for example, when the governor signs the budget bill, he will that budget will take effect on July 1st, 2020, and that's when the state's budget year starts. So it sounds like there's several, there's sort of several areas with, through this process um, where 
you know, obviously we have the, the initial governor's budget mm-hmm. when it goes to the General Assembly, when the governor reviews it, um, and again, this amendment process. It sounds like there's several different areas where advocates and people with vested interest in disability rights can make their voices heard. Absolutely. Um, and you've, you've already kind of answered that pretty well about, you know, calling your local representatives and, and speaking with the people who, you know, interact with the bill and, and make mm-hmm. those decisions. There's actually, there's a couple other things people can do as well. So you, the one thing that people can always do is they can always reach out directly to the governor's office. So the governor gets many, many, many communications from citizens every single day. Mm -hmm. And you could do that by making a call, by sending an email on the governor's website, which is governor.virginia.gov. You can fill out a form. And the way that when constituents contact the governor, so those requests go down to the secretary's office. And then there's other people in the secretary's office that, that advocates can interface with. This idea about budgeting and, and being aware of the budget and where this money is going is, is critical. Yeah, yeah and, and as much as I may want to go live in a forest now and survive only on the barter system, that's, uh, you know, maybe not an option for Magical me. Magical thinking, I think. <laughs> yeah. So we will, um, we're going to wrap it up, but thank you so much for sitting down with You're us, welcome. Rhonda. It has been really educational and kind of uplifting, kind of demoralizing. <laughs> At least you're not asleep. I'm so not that's asleep. The important thing. No, that was fascinating. I, I think we were, we were clearly educated. Hopefully our listeners were also educated on this topic and we're excited to have you back in the future. Thank you. Thank Happy you so much. And now the DLCV highlight. In early January of 2020, the United States Department of Justice and the Commonwealth of Virginia had their most recent hearing regarding the community integration mandate that arose from the settlement between the United States Department of Justice and the Commonwealth of Virginia. The Disability Law Center of Virginia has previously filed our own briefs with the court to take a position on what would be best for the integration of people with disabilities and how this agreement would affect our constituents. It seemed in this case that the United States Department of Justice was arguing for measurable standards, and a lot of these standards were based on information that the state was already gathering, and it would seem to be no particular hardship for the Commonwealth to turn that information over to the court, to the Department of Justice, and others. One of the biggest arguments that DLCV was able to make in this case was that we are already able to access these reports and identify trends and patterns of abuse and neglect and really barriers to integration. So for the state to say it's an undue burden for them to turn them over seems like a difficult argument to make. And fortunately, in this case, DLCV was able to come in with our own experiences, our own work uh, using information that's provided to us, and to make the argument that these measurable standards are not only necessary, but they are reasonable for Virginia to turn over to the court and to the Department of Justice. At the hearing, it appeared that the judge had reviewed the DLCV brief and seemed to appreciate our input, and I think it says a lot about our status as an uh, essential component to this settlement and to these discussions in that um, it seems now that the courts are willing to accept our input without even requiring a lot of effort to have those briefs accepted, and in fact, they seem to be quite welcome. So it's pretty exciting for DLCV to be able to be a part of this case. It seems exciting for the court to welcome our participation 
and we were pretty excited to have not only the brief accepted, but to hear references to it in the oral arguments this week. So that's our update, and we'll see you again soon. So that was the lovely Rhonda explaining the state budget to us. I feel incredibly informed. I feel so informed and also ready to go live in the woods and operate on the barter system. That's super fair. I, my position on that has not changed. It was, but it was really important, and I'm really yes. glad she was able to talk to us about that. I know that uh, in the upcoming weeks we're going to continue talk about, you know, legislation, the General Assembly, yeah. some of those outcomes. So all yeah. this stuff is really important. As well as you know, we're gonna we're gonna keep bringing you self advocacy tools and ways that you guys can really participate in this process. But uh, thank you all for listening to this episode of Rights Here, Rights Now, brought to you by the Disability Law Center of Virginia. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. If you need assistance or want more information about DLCV and what we do, visit us online at dlcv.org. And follow us on Twitter at DisabilityLawVA and share us with your friends. Until next time, I'm Ren Fazuski. And I'm Virginia Ferris. And this has been Rights Here, Rights Now. Rights Now.